I'm going to read from Matthew 27, beginning in verse 1. Matthew 27, 1. Now when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him up to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and he departed and he went away and he hanged himself. And the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they counseled together, with the, and with the money bought the potter's field, which is a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, the 30 pieces, They took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word again, especially at this time of year when we um, really are just so thankful that you gave your son for us, I pray that you would minister to us, God, and that our hearts would be renewed in the knowledge of your love for us, in the great grace that you have shown to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I only read the first 10 verses here, but I hope to get at least as far as verse 31 this morning. You know, every um, good love story begins with, how did you meet? And um, whenever I um, officiate a wedding, and I'm officiating one this afternoon, that's really where I, where I start with a couple. I, you know, you were just curious, you know, you love each other. How did you meet? And everybody has their own story. Um, Patsy and I, you know, she's from Pennsylvania. I'm from Texas. Well, how did you meet from two different states like that? Well, she came down to be the camp nurse. And I tell people I spent all summer getting hurt. And <laughs> that didn't work, so I married her. Um, so we all have our story. I, and some people, they, they spend those single years just actively pursuing someone, hoping that it'll fall into place. Others just stay kind of back and just waiting for it to happen. Um, I'll pick on my nieces this morning. Um, I don't know if Autumn's here. Don't see her. Good. Um, she was one who used to just scurry away whenever any boy showed any interest. And she would just giggle and, and just walk away. Hi, Jonathan. <laughs> but then Jonathan came around. And she literally jumped into his arms. And the rest was history. They went on a hike up on Chanted Rock. And they, she got in a precarious position. And Jonathan was there to rescue her. And so he said, jump. And she did. And now they're married. I have another niece, Autumn's little sister, who took more after her Aunt Patsy, and she has dated most boys in the county of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and I'll be officiating her wedding this spring. And a great guy, and um, he was the last in a long list <laughs> that she's been with. 
But um, we all have that story. And, and this couple that I'm officiating their wedding today, they're both in their early 30s. And so I was interested, how did you meet? And obviously they've been quite picky over the years that they just now are getting married. And well, they resorted to um, a website. Um, and so they found each other online. And so God uses all kinds of things. That's great. But the whole point of these love stories is that we are selective. And we want to find the right person. And we don't want to make a mistake, right? And, um, and that's a good thing. We, we, I encourage my kids, you know, to be very selective. And when it came to Audrey, uh, Mark had a hard time with me because I took quite a while before I said yes. Uh, because it was my little girl, and I was quite particular. And I'm glad that I did say yes. This chapter 27 is um, about a love story, but not the kind that I've just described, where we spend all this time and effort being very particular, very selective, Wanting the best person, the person who will cause us the least grief, the person who will respond the most fully to our love. This chapter shows humanity whom God has loved that was nothing like what we would choose. If we were doing the choosing, trying to find a spouse, we would not have chosen who God chose. Remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Well, this is a chapter showing all the different classifications of world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So this, I've come to think, is really providential. I believe it's God's timing that this would be the sermon before Christmas. Because it sets the stage that Jesus came into this world, dying for this world, so that he might secure a bride for himself. It's all about a love affair that God so loved this world. And then you look at who he loved, and you go, oh, my word. It begins with Pilate. I'm sorry, not Pilate, with Judas. And we know that Judas has already betrayed Jesus. For what reason, we're never told. Probably good. And now he's feeling tremendous remorse, which is a good thing, for what he's done. So much so that while Jesus is still being prosecuted, wrongly prosecuted by his accusers, the Sanhedrin council and later Pilate, that in the midst of those circumstances, he goes back to the very priest that he turned Jesus over to and says, I've made a huge mistake. Didn't use those words, but in essence, that's what he's saying. Verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
So this is good. Remorse, restitution, confession. And yet we have to be clear. Scripture said this man was the son of perdition. That he was of the devil. He is never even hinted at as being a man of faith. And even at this point, remorse, restitution, confession, but he does not place his faith in Christ. He does not receive Christ. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And, not, and he is never credited with faith in Christ. Esau was a man who also had great remorse for what he had done. Great sorrow, even to the point of tears. And yet, the author of Hebrews says there was no place for repentance in him. The King James says that Judas was, was repentant. But the word for repent that's used in this text that the King James takes it from is not the word metanao that we normally would get that word from. So I can't even, I'm not prepared to say that Judas even repented. But even if he had, you can repent, you can confess, you can feel remorse, you can even try to make things right and never place your faith in Christ. Judas was that man. He is one classification of humanity. Sorry for his sin. Grieved over his sin. Wishing he hadn't done what he had done. But not ever believing in Jesus for salvation. That is a big swath of humanity. Not all people are hard and callous toward the decisions they've made in life. Some people are very broken over the mess they've made of things, over the destruction they've brought into the lives of their loved ones. Some people are so grieved even to the point of taking their own lives, which was Judas. And when he saw that they wouldn't take the money back and wouldn't even acknowledge that what he had done was wrong, all they said is, what is that to us? See to that yourself. What miserable priest. I mean, the priests are, are the professional dealers with sin. They're the guys that are supposed to, when the sinner comes, they receive and they, and they, and they, and they pronounce even forgiveness. Not these guys. See to that yourself. And they just push him away. And so he threw the money into the sanctuary and in their religiosity they said well we can't put it in the temple treasury so they they bought a piece of land the potter's field is not was not a burial place it was a place where the potters went to get clay and apparently this field had been had all the clay already removed and so it, it, and so it was just a, a vacant piece of land and so they probably were not able they didn't have to pay much for it 30 pieces of silver is nothing and they turned that potter's field into a burial place for Gentiles who died in the city of Jerusalem and couldn't be buried anywhere else. Just a trash field. And he went out and he hanged himself. 
One of the other gospels says that he fell and he burst open. You put the two passages together and what it seems is, is that he did hang himself. And very likely the tree broke after he died. And or the rope broke because he could have been hanging for who knows how many days. And when his body hit the ground, it burst open because it was already in decay. Judas was a man who at this point in his life shows remorse, regret. He makes restitution. He makes confession. But he's not saved. Never placed his faith in Christ. We should be a little careful, I think, of how quickly we can say someone is a Christian. Doing the things that Judas did does not make you a Christian. It is faith in Christ and Christ alone which saves us. The second group of people that I want to look at here, which also represents humanity, are the priests and the elders. And I would say if, if Judas was a man with remorse but no place for repentance, no place for receiving Christ, the priests and elders were a people with religion but no righteousness. They had no regard, no compassion, no concern for a sinner who's convicted of his sin. They are miserable priests. They are derelict in their duty. They have religious scruples. It is not lawful. But they have no personal righteousness. They are truly hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, and very much worthy of the woes of chapter 23 that Jesus pronounced on them. Self-serving people. Interested in only one thing. Their own power. Their own recognition. And it was because of jealousy that they crucified Jesus. Religion without righteousness. And that also represents a huge swath of humanity. These people, would, were, they, they believed in God. They knew their Bibles. They had memorized, in most cases, these men would have had to memorize at least the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And in, in the case of these Pharisees, these Sadducees, they'd probably memorize the entire Old Testament. They were religious down to the nth degree. But there was no personal righteousness. They were rejecting the Son of God. Willfully, knowingly, not in ignorance. They knew who they were rejecting. Caiaphas had said, you call yourself the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus said, yes. He knew what he was doing. These men were not ignorant. You can be very religious and not know Jesus. I very much recall back in the 70s, there was a revival that was sweeping through the Presbyterian and Methodist churches. And it was being led by a, a ministry called the Lay Witness Renewal Movement. And what it was is just believing Christians from all paths of life who were not ordained, who were not clergy, were going into these high churches 
where the Methodist pastors and the, and the Presbyterian pastors, they wore their robes and with the sashes on. We went to a Presbyterian church, so I remember very much how it was. So you had this high class, the, you know, the, the high ordered religion, as it were, and everybody else's laity. It's interesting that Martin Luther, with the Reformation of the church, he said he did not come to do away with the, with the, with, with the clergy. He came to do away with the laity. His point is, we are all a priesthood of believers. We are all priests, and there's not a distinction when it comes to the body of Christ. But at that time, religion had become very stale. And there were few people, if any, talking about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this movement spreads where people are just coming in. Half a dozen people would come in, and on a, on, from Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday morning, they were just simply Christians of every stripe sharing their faith, their personal relationship with Jesus, what it meant to be a Christian. And revival was spreading. Even pastors were getting saved. I kid you not. The great revival that took place during those days. So many people that had been in church all their lives were realizing, I have never had a relationship with Jesus. Religion without a relationship. And they were coming to faith in Christ. One of our students, just this last week, as she shared her testimony, she said I, that she became a Christian while being at His Hill this past semester. Mom was a Christian, so I say she grew up in a Christian home hearing the gospel. But apparently she had never placed her faith in Christ until being in a Bible school and coming to that recognition. I've been religious my whole life. I have grown up in a Christian home, but I personally have never had a relationship with Jesus. This represents a massive swath of humanity. And then there is the, there's Pilate. Oh, what a study Pilate is. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he made no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they are testifying against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the multitude any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Let me just tell you a little bit about this Barabbas. He's probably not what the movies say. He was a murderer. The scripture is clear on that. Acts will say to that, Peter says, you asked for a murderer to be released in exchange for the prince of life. So he was a murderer. But this is not your run-of-the-mill murderer. It seems to be that Barabbas was, was, was an insurrectionist who was opposing the Roman rule and who had killed Romans in his attempt to overthrow their government. And so he would have been closer to a hero to the Jewish population, especially in Jerusalem, than certainly Jesus was. 
You see, because why? One of the reasons that we don't know, but one of the reasons that Judas may have betrayed Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus because Judas was hoping that Jesus would overthrow the Romans, like Barabbas. And that helps to set the atmosphere a little bit better of why they're going to choose Barabbas over Jesus. Verse 18, for he knew that because of envy they had delivered him up. Pilate was a man with his, wise, with his eyes wide open. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. We don't know whether the God inspired that or the devil did. It could have been either one, really. We don't know that she came to faith. There's no indication that she did. But she had a very troubling dream that night. So much so that she sends word to Pilate and says, you better leave that man alone. Verse 20, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to him, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ. And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? Now those three questions, it, it occurs to me, are a sermon in themselves. The first question, which of the two do you want me to release? Because see, there's always this, this issue, this choice that we have before us. And really the choice is Jesus or this world. Jesus or myself. It's not the Barabbas, it's me. The Barabbas is the world that I would choose myself or choose this world over Jesus. Which do you choose? The second question, what shall I do with Jesus? It, that's the question, isn't it? What shall I do with Jesus? And then the third, because the answer is crucify him, why? If you don't choose Jesus, why not? Because if you're not choosing him, you're rejecting him. Why would you reject him? Why would you choose his death? It makes no sense. It is pure evil. What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting... He took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And amazingly, the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but Jesus he scourged and delivered over to be crucified. Pilate was a politician, and he had fallen out of favor very recently with the Caesar, the emperor. And he had been strongly rebuked. And in a few years' time after this incident, he will be deposed by the emperor. He has, emperor finally has enough of Pilate. So he knows that he's walking on eggshells. He knows he can't afford to do more to make the emperor angry. So he's caught between a hard and a rock place. It's between Jesus' life or his position as governor. 
When they brought Jesus to Pilate, they had to change their charges. They condemned him as priests and elders for blasphemy. That is a religious cause, a religious charge, and that would not hold water with Rome. They are not going to crucify Jesus because of blasphemy. So they had to find another charge. So they found a political charge and said he makes himself out to be king. And that's where Pilate is going to focus his questions. In fact, just quickly, look over at John 18, because John gives us more of the interaction between, Peter, between Pilate and Jesus. John 18. Beginning in verse 33. Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, You are the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. So you see, this is all about a political issue. Are you a king? Yes, but my kingdom is not like Rome. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, and they're not, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, I'm not a threat to your kingdom. I'm not a threat to Rome. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate's famous response, what is the truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. So this Pilate, He is clearly not wanting to crucify Jesus. He is absolutely reluctant. He even resisted. He does all that he can to get Jesus released. He thought he could outmaneuver the Jews by offering Barabbas in place of Jesus. He didn't think for a moment they would choose Barabbas. But they did. These Jews in Jerusalem are more focused on Rome than the Jews in Galilee. Jesus was much more popular with the Galilean Jews than he was with the Jerusalem Jews because he spent most of his time in Galilee. It was the Galilean Jews who at this last Passover who were saying, Hosanna in the highest, and laying down their garments and cutting the palm branches for Jesus to walk across when he was on that donkey. It would not have been hard for the chief priests and the elders to stir up the Jerusalem Jews against Jesus. But Pilate, he was not blind, but he was pragmatic, expedient, and self-serving. He was reluctant, but he had no resolve to do the right thing. No wonder this man asked, what is the truth? Because there were no absolutes in him. Everything was about personal 
preservation. Everything was about what is pragmatic and expedient. I hate to say it, but it occurs to me that Pilate represents not only the politicians of this world, but a lot of preachers. I don't want to be a pilot. Pragmatic, expedient, self-serving, no core values, no absolutes that we stand on, nothing that we'd say on this hill I will die. That is a large swath of humanity today. Whatever it takes to survive, that is what I will do. And then there's the crowd. Oh my. They're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. What a wicked, wicked lot. Peter will argue in Acts chapter 3 that you delivered up and disowned him. You put to death the prince of life. You nailed to a cross and put him to death in Acts chapter 2. This request to have Barabbas instead of Jesus was insane. A request without rationale. It was insane. It was wicked. It was evil. It was a bloodlust. Kill him. And even going so far in their insanity, their irrationality to say, let his blood be on us and our children. What are you thinking? In Acts chapter 5, when Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin council, they say, you intend to bring this man's blood on, uh, on us. How ironic. Just a few months before, they are saying, let his blood be on us. And in Acts chapter 5, they're telling the disciples of Jesus, you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, they've done that themselves. But it is amazingly, amazing how insane we can act. That we can choose evil over good. That people can just be whipped up into a frenzy that, that they're just practically foaming at the mouth and just perpetrating evil in the name of crushing evil. This was the French Revolution. And this mentality is being whipped up around us all the time today. And we go, it makes no sense. That good people are being loathed and hated and despised. And one of their deaths are being called for even. It's purely satanic. We are seeing here on display the vicious insanity of the world. The murdering of the Savior, the innocent, the hating of the good, the condemning of the righteous. Willfully, dispassionately ruthlessly, eagerly, without mercy, compassion, or restraint. Pure blood lust. 
This kind of evil can't be reasoned with. No wonder Jesus is remaining silent. How can you reason with this insanity? This kind of evil can't be reasoned with. It can only be crushed. But before God crushes it, amazingly, He provides opportunity for salvation. And we have to think that many of these people are the same people in Jerusalem that when Peter preaches, 3,000 come to faith. 5,000 come to faith. There's hope even for people like this. Then as I turn the page in my Bible, I think about these soldiers and what they did to him. Maybe they would just say, we are just following orders. How much we hear that today. Again, another large swath of humanity. I was just doing what we were told to do. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole Roman cohort. 600 men. And they stripped him. So they're just stripping him of his dignity. He's naked in front of these men. And they put a scarlet robe on him. This is after he's been scourged. Scourging was designed to bring a person to the point of death. And scourging before crucifixion was to make the crucifixion go faster. Brutal beyond description what the scourging was. Jesus' back would have been ripped to ribbons. And when they threw that scarlet robe on him, and it gets matted and stuck into the blood of his back, only to rip it off a bit later, indescribable. And they had no mercy whatsoever. They wove a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head. And they put a reed in his right hand, and they kneeled down before him. And they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him. And they took the reed, and they began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took his robe off, and they put his garments on him, and they led him away to crucify him. Just following orders. Just following orders. Dutiful, but ruthless. No respect, no regard, no restraint. Again, humanity. And then we go back and look at everything that was done to Jesus, beginning with Caiaphas, who says in verse 67 of chapter 26, they spat in his face and they beat him with their fists and others slapped him and they said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? And you add to that what these Roman soldiers are doing. They have scourged him. They have stripped him. They have mocked him. They have beaten on him. And they have spat on him. You read various commentaries and they say that Jesus' figure was so marred 
that this was probably what Isaiah was speaking of when he said his appearance was marred beyond that of any man. His face would have been unrecognizable. Every bone in his face would have been fractured, as well as his skull. His back ripped to shreds, and even his bowels would have been perhaps exposed because the whip comes around and tears the flesh away. And yet, he was silent as a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears. Restraint, without resentment, without retaliation. He could have snapped his fingers and they all would have died. Restraint. Had he not restrained himself, he would have thwarted the divine purpose. Had he defended himself, he would have escaped what God brought him here to do. And what did God bring him here to do? Romans 5, verse 6, is the love story. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Helpless and ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet, the Potiphar, the priest, the pilot, the soldier, the crowd, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, what young man chooses a bride who has played the enemy and he says, will you marry me? Who does that? This is what Jesus did. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, Enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, and much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So Christmas is the divine love story. For God so loved this world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And God knew who he was giving his son for. Every aspect of humanity is represented in chapter 27. And we all fit in one category or another. And God so loved, he gave his son. I hope this renews our heart as we think of one more Christmas, that it not just be another Christmas. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, 
we can't begin to say thank you enough for what you've done for us. We would not have given our children for such awful, despicable people. Your enemies. His love is beyond comprehension, beyond expression. I pray that we never doubt it. That every moment, God, that we would hesitate and begin to think that, do you love me? That our hearts and minds would be drawn back to Jesus and the cross where you demonstrate your love for us. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies. Reconciled to you simply by faith in Jesus. Thank you, God, for giving your son for us. I pray that we would humbly receive him with joy, and with hearts full of adoration and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.